Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the uh, 1995 Ron Howard directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And uh, Jim, I always love when we have guests and you brought one on today. Yeah, I found a really good one. Uh, uh, We have... uh, we have an interesting minute with lots of lots of people getting very upset and crying, and they're always looking for a, a good uh, guidance at this point. And who would I think would be a better guide uh, to this minute than uh, uh, the spiritual advisor of the Movies by Minutes and the official chaplain of Movies by Minutes movement, uh, Father David Mowry. Father David, great having you back on the show. Uh, Roger that, Mission Control. You're coming through loud and clear. <laughs> I love no, it. No, th- thank you so much for having me on the show. It's great to be here. Is, uh, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of, lot of terror going on in this thing, and uh, a lot of people crying. And right in the middle of it all is uh, Father Rance Howard, who is really <laughs> the father of Ron Howard. The... Yeah, father in more ways than one. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, huh. I, I love, so let me just say, I love the Movies by Minutes format, and I love that the two of you decided to do a breakdown of Apollo 13. It is one of my favorite movies. It's I think it's in my top five. Wow. And I, so as much as I love this movie, however, I never realized that the priest in this scene was played by Ron Howard's father until I listened to your show. Because ah. <laughs> I knew about uh, Ron's brother showing up in everything, but I didn't know he was able to sneak both his dad and his mom yeah, into yeah. this picture. It's so delightful. It's just so sweet that he, he is that, uh, you know, he's having that much fun with it and, and that uh, generous with his family members. Oh uh, yeah. Nepotism always works better on a big screen. So. <laughs> if only he could have snuck Andy Griffith in there somewhere. That would have been, yeah. you know, it would have been amazing. <laughs> well, I think there's wow. a sheriff somewhere behind those camera crews. Maybe yeah, filmed entirely in Mayberry. Could be, um, but uh, yeah, great. It, this this is such a, you know, there's not a lot of talking, but there's an awful lot of just emotion going on, and uh, I always feel sorry for the uh, the poor actress that plays uh, Barbara uh, Lovell, uh, uh, Jim Lovell's daughter, because mm. she had to cry for every, just about every scene she was in. She just had to start bawling <laughs> away and falling into mom's lap, and just all kinds of just sadness. When she's not crying about the Beatles, she's crying about the potential death of her father. I mean, those are just, both emotionally equivalent to each other, I would think. Yeah, yeah, you know, and it's, uh, oh gosh, yeah, her, you know, her father's named James Lovell, and uh, Paul McCartney's real first name is James, so it's uh, old James's. James has caused a lot of sorrow. I can vouch for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. Well, we've got um, we've got Rance Howard uh, being their uh, their local pastor, and I was just, you know, you being, I'm sure you get this question asked a lot, but you must have some favorite movie priests. Uh, my my favorite movie priests are the two priests in the um, in the movie The Quiet Man, which oh, okay. um, which stars John Wayne as an American who moves back to his home in Ireland, and uh, the the movie throughout is 
narrated by the senior priest of this little uh, village in Ireland. And it was just one of my, my favorite, favorite lines of any priest introduction. Uh, you, you have this long, wide shot of the beautiful Irish countryside, rolling green hills, this charming path. You see this lone figure clad in black. Uh, and the narration says, I, that be myself walking there, that tall, saintly looking man. <laughs> and and, and the, the, the priest dynamic is a delight. So the, the, the older priest um, is this very gruff, uh, rough and tumble kind of guy. He gets into the conspiracy in the village in order to, to get John Wayne and uh, Maureen. Uh, 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 Maureen O'Hara. Oh, uh, Maureen O'Hara, thank you. Um, trying to get John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara together. He is, there's the great fishing scene where uh, that senior priest, he's, he's out there fishing and Maureen O'Hara comes to him and, and has to confess that she and her husband did not spend their first uh, night together, but she made uh, Jim Thornton sleep out in a sleeping bag and he, she can't say it in English, so she has to say it in the Irish. And there's this yeah. great scene in Gaelic between the two of them. Um, those by far rank the highest. Of course, the the priests from The Exorcist are absolutely oh, stellar. Yeah. Just a That's really, a yeah, really great performance there um, by uh, Max von Sydow, and um, uh, I can't remember the other actor's name. Um, oh, but, Father uh, Damien, yes. Um, yeah, Father Damien. Yeah. So yeah, the, my... those two those two priests represent two different very aspects of faith with the the senior priest being very stolid and secure and having spent many years in spiritual combat and the the younger priest who's wrestling and is is very much of the moment he's very much a 1970s priest where yes he's a priest but he's also a trained psychologist he's just mm, not so sure about some of the more supernatural stuff and he comes face to face with this potent evil and makes a heroic sacrifice at the end of the movie um those those are in the upper echelons of my I, favorite I movie priests. I, I, I have I have a confession about uh, the Exorcist. My uh, my philosophy teacher from Fordham, Father O'Malley, is in that uh, uh, <laughs> movie. Really, he's, he's the one that gives uh, last rites. If if you remember, J.C. Miller gets knocked down the stairs. The famous yes. you know Exorcist stairs gets knocked yes. down the stairs, and uh, he gives him uh, uh, last rites at the bottom of the stairs. That's uh, his best friend, the one that plays the piano in the you know uh, Linda. Linda Blair comes in and goes, you're going to die up there. And he's playing the piano. Yeah. Um, uh, he plays, um, anyway, uh, Father O'Malley, when he was, uh, <laughs> when they were doing the scene at the bottom of the, ex this is far away from Apollo, but it's movies. It's okay. So uh, <laughs> when he was at the, the bottom of the stairs, they had been out there all night, all night doing this. And uh, so, uh, um Oh gosh, the uh, the the Friedkin, the director Friedkin. Yeah, uh, they've been doing it all right, and he it was cold, and he was like trying. Are you sorry for your sins? Are you? And he's he was getting he was blowing every take. He wasn't getting the lines right out, and and the only thing that um uh oh gosh, I keep dropping his name um Father Father Karras, Jason Miller. Every mm -hmm. uh Jason Miller, all he had to do was like move his fingers. Are you sorry for your sins? And he kind of moves his fingers, and um so uh. They finished. They, they were running out of time. They were going to have to break for the night. And uh, Friedkin came over to him and said, do you want to know how to do this scene with the emotion that we're trying to get? And he's like, yes. You know, and, and he leaned in and was expecting to get this big you know, thing about acting and how, uh -huh. how directing an actor. So Friedkin leaned in and rabbit punched him in the stomach. And he said, now do the scene. 
And Father Malley was like, so are you sorry for your sins? And, Gasping. And it was like, cut, print it. And, you know, so it, the next time you watch The Exorcist, when you see that scene, just remember that Father O'Malley is in very deep pain. Wow. He's doing that scene. So my, anyway, think, that's my only I, Exorcist story. I think my favorite uh, clergy... Of any uh, uh, on film is uh, Father Mulcahy and Mash, uh, William Christopher uh, mm-hmm. in the TV show. So I guess I'm breaking a rule because it's not a movie. Um, well, how, how do you feel about uh, Renee Auberjonois? Oh, in, in, the... in the movie, so he's good. I mean, yeah, he's very good too. My favorite line in that is uh, Hawkeye goes on his tirade and leaves the tent, and you know, Hot Lips says something to the effect of, uh, "I wonder how a." Uh, a man like that could be you know, uh, hold a, a high uh, you know level job in the army medical corps, and, and Father Mulcahy kind of without missing a beat is like he was drafted. He was drafted. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's the best line in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's, like, it's it's very it's very mash right in that moment. Oh yeah. yeah, but the TV show Mash William Christopher I thought was um, there there was just something genuine about. I have no, I have no idea what William Christopher was like. I just have to feel that he was probably just like Father Mulcahy. So, jocularity, uh, jocularity. Yeah. <laughs> so I love. There is an episode of Mash. This is my only thing, and I'll get off my Mash uh, soapbox here. <laughs> um, there was an episode of Mash where they were all in a tent watching a movie, and the movie uh, broke. The film broke, and Clinger's trying to fix it, and they're kind of entertaining themselves by doing a bunch of like stupid human tricks and you know singing or whatever. And at one point, they all start imitating Father Mulcahy. That was real. That wasn't planned. Everybody does did a William Christopher imitation. <laughs> um, and everybody took their turn doing it. And they left it in because it was so funny. And it was just kind of an inside cast thing. Uh, and it made it into the episode. So, um, But uh, at any rate, uh, that's my favorite. Uh, it's something I know happens behind closed doors. I'm a... I'm a used to being a public person and so i would have stories from when i was in the parish of parents saying oh father billy was doing you perfectly last night after dinner like well what was he doing and then you know they would oh he was saying this and he was doing this with his hands and he did this thing that you do with your body like really i i didn't know i i did that oh my gosh i'm so, I'm so embarrassed as a priest you just get used to being a public person and that's part of the 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 training that we put men through as they get ready to go out into ministry where they have to know that they are going to be watched no matter what situation they're in. So, you know, this man of the cloth here in our movie, even though he's just being there, everyone knows he is there. And as a chaplain, as a spiritual guide, for me as a priest, to be present in that situation means that I am giving up the right to having a personal moment. I am making myself available to everyone who is there. And that begins at the moment you enter into the room. Uh, you, uh, you talk to anyone who's gone through hospital chaplaincy and what those uh, ministers are told again and again, your job is to be present to that person. That is what you have to do. You don't have to say anything else. You don't have to fix their problems. You just have to be there. And you have to uh, learn how to be comfortable in that situation as a priest or as a minister, because uh, especially uh, speaking for myself as a man, I like to fix things. I like to do things like, okay, there's a problem. Let's get into it. Let's solve how to get the CO2 scrubbers working properly (laughs) in the LEM when they're supposed to be in the command module. That really appeals to me. And it goes against... 
our natural tendencies to enter into that kind of chaplaincy moment. But, you know, this priest is exuding that pastoral presence. We don't need him to do anything. I, I wouldn't expect him to have a great speech, just that he's there with the Lovells is enough in that moment. And that's a, a challenge that I face every time I enter into this kind of situation where there's a death, where someone is sick. It's just simply being present because that is enough to communicate the presence of God who is constantly with us in all manners of situations. Uh, your primary, uh, you are a teacher as well as a, as a priest, and your primary uh, focus is on homiletics, the, the teaching of how to preach, how to be a, how a sermon, or as, you know, the, 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 one of the ways of saying it is, is to afflict the comfortable. But here, <laughs> the whole thing it, that you're flipping over is you're trying to comfort the afflicted. What kind, uh, apart from, I guess, you know, you, you go on with a priest who's already done this, what kind of training do you get on? Is there like psychology, social work? How, how, how are you trained up in that? Mm-hmm. So uh, going through seminary, uh, going through the formal training of, of uh, learning the ministerial skills necessary to become a Catholic priest, we give uh, men training in what's called pastoral care and counseling. So our responsibility as priests is not to be therapists. Uh, you don't. You, the the priest is often the the first person someone talks to when they have a problem, but we don't expect every priest to be trained as a clinical psychologist. Now, some, like our priest friend from The Exorcist, go farther in that regard, which is great, uh, but every priest isn't expected to do that. Every priest, however, should be able to listen well. So when we have the men here at the seminary, I'm teaching at Mundelein Seminary, and when the men come through the program here, part of their training is learning how to listen to everything that a person is communicating. Because as you often know, sometimes what someone is saying isn't what they actually want to communicate. There's some emotion, uh, as one of my professors said, there's a music underneath the words that you need to listen for. And so there's training in, um, in reflective listening, where you are listening not to respond, but just to reflect back what the person is saying to make it clear that, okay, uh, I, I can, you know, I, I know, like in this situation, okay, Barbara, I, I, I see those tears. Tell me what, what's in those tears for you. What, what, what's got you so upset? And of course, as I can make an educated guess as a yeah. minister, but what's more important is that I give the person an opportunity to give voice themselves to what's going on so that when it's my turn to speak, I can really meet them where they are. So I know exactly you know, what Barbara is worried about. I'm worried about my dad dying. You know, I'm really concerned that I didn't say goodbye to him or whatever those concerns might be. That allows me to more effectively minister because I give her the chance to tell me what's behind those tears rather than me taking a guess like, well, you're pretty upset about your dad dying. Well, don't worry. I mean, maybe, but that's me imposing something on her and that's not going to be as fruitfully received as her being able to tell me. And then my words come as a legitimate response. Uh, we also give men intentional training in hospital chaplaincy, like I mentioned before. Every seminarian, uh, with some exceptions, depending on uh education requirements and and the various individual things that come up. But for the most part, every seminarian goes through a summer of hospital work. They spend a summer visiting patients, processing through all kinds of situations, you know, from the person who's just in to have a quick 
checkup procedure to the person who is dying with cancer. They go from the emergency room to the neonatal unit. They'll go from the gastrointestinal ward uh, to those who are recovering from heart surgery. And in that process, you learn, again, how to listen and how to meet people where they are. And then the beauty of a hospital chaplaincy program like that, you then get together with the other student chaplains and process together. Okay, this is what I went through, and this is how I responded to the situation, but I don't think this went very well. The other students give feedback, and then you have a supervisor there who's an experienced chaplain, and they say, yeah, you're right. Maybe this would have been a better strategy. Let's talk about how to address these, these situations in the future. When you, um, every pilot remembers their first soloing and, and, you know, there's always a first time for things. Do you remember the first time you got a call from a hospital, say, get down here and you felt that like ice water going down your back? Kind of, this is me alone doing this? The first time that happened for me was during my hospital chaplaincy summer. I was at, uh, I was assigned to a community hospital attached to a larger university healthcare system. Uh, because the supervisor there said, well, look, you're going to be as a priest in these community hospitals more than the, the high acuity ER. So you sh- this is a good training ground for you. But even there, I remember there was a call that went out for a, a patient that indicated they were on the verge of death. And it was an absolute rush to get into the room. Every medical personnel in the hospital was rushing in there, doctors, nurses. They had the crash cart in there. And I remember when that call went out, I realized, oh, that's me. I'm supposed to show up because, yes, there's the medical care for this person, but we treat the entire person, which includes their spiritual well-being. And so I have to be present for that. And I had that that moment of ice water running down my back because I didn't know what I was going to do in that situation. Again, that that temptation to fix, to have to do yeah. something. But then I remember, no, I just, I just have to be there. And I was slow to get there because I wanted all the doctors and you know, all the, the medical personnel to get in ahead of me. But slowly, the first thing, you know, the nurses left and then the other tax and the doctors left and the crash cart was removed. And then it was just me and the woman left in the room and everything was really quiet. And I found that without even meaning to, I had taken her hand and she and I sat there for a good 15, 20 minutes in silence. And I knew it was enough just to be there for her. Um, She, unfortunately, she passed away later that week. But in that moment, there was that, that grip of fear around my heart that ultimately proved to be unfounded. It was just enough for me to, to show up. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. I mean, it's, it's great that you were there. I mean, at, at a time, on times like that, you say to yourself, what more can I do? But you've done, you did what you, what you were meant to do mm-hmm. there. So, um, and finding out that you have it within you to do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was, that really was not point. something I had any confidence in yeah. <laughs> going to that hospital chaplaincy. I thought, I am going to die. I am going to do something wrong. I, I'm, I'm going to screw something up. And I had zero confidence uh, going into that hospital chaplaincy summer. So it was a great experience for me. I imagine it's similar to that experience of taking the the stick for the first time in a flight. Like, okay, well, I I know what all the knobs and 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 dials mean, but now I've got to actually fly this plane on my own. You know, I I wish that I had on my first solo these these great. You know, I'd written books and stuff like that about it, and I I, I had read uh, uh, 
books, you know, from Charles Lindbergh and everybody. And I'm like, you know, you know, I wish I had these amazing thoughts going through my head of like, I'm going to go up and dance with the clouds and all this stuff. I literally remember taxiing out. And in my head, I was thinking, how did I fool these people into thinking that I can fly this airplane? I remember, and I remember taking off, I mean, literally on climb out. And I'm just like, well, I'm coming down one way or the other. <laughs> so, but I, it's an, it's I, an all or nothing proposition once you're I up there, isn't it? It is. Like, yeah, we've never left a man up there. <laughs> so, uh, and I just remember thinking, like, how did I fool these people into thinking that I could do this? But, but once you're up there, and I'm sure it, it's the uh, maybe the same experience you had, without even thinking about it, all of your training is just there. Mm-hmm. And it happens. You you're doing stuff you're not even thinking about, just because it's 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 been so, I guess driven you know into you that this is this is how you do it or just it just felt natural. This is how it happened. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to surrender to those moments. You you habituate yourself to what needs to happen. But at a certain point, you let go of actively thinking about what comes next, and you just be in that moment. It's like for our three astronauts in this scene. There's nothing they can do right now. Whatever is going to happen is outside of their control. And so they just have to surrender to the law of gravity and trust that they have done everything they can. And there's this great tension that uh, the whole movie puts into the scene where it's just a bunch of people waiting. But between the, the the stakes and our investment in the characters and how much this moment means not just to the people in mission control not just to the family but with the shot of the the camera and the news crews there's the uh there's the implication that the whole world is holding its breath and yeah. is surrendering to this moment where we where we just have to be there's nothing else to do yeah, I, I, my, uh, my space physiology teacher, who was a, a NASA astronaut, uh, four-time NASA astronaut, uh, Captain Wendy Lawrence, she talked about. I, I said, was it is it hard, you know, getting in there thinking that, you know, when when you've been on a shuttle and people have died on the shuttle, people, you know, you've seen the Challenger, you saw the the loss of Columbia, and what is it like worrying about that? And she said that she really didn't worry about herself because she knew how to do her job. What she felt bad was if anything went wrong. It would be over for them in an instant. They wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't know what happened. But uh, she, she felt more worried for the people on the ground watching all of these things. And I'm sure the uh, the Apollo 13 astronauts were thinking, did I do everything that possible to do? Because they're not going to know if it didn't work out. Um, and it's, you know, it really this this minute really brings up the the kind of terror there was. I mean, I'm I'm the only one here old enough to remember this thing, but it was that the world did collectively hold its breath. There were um, you know, everything just kind of stopped that day and mm. uh, just waiting to hear what was going, what was going to happen. And as you said, there really, there wasn't, there was no power on earth that could control what was going to happen next. Everybody had done what they could. And then it was just a matter of, of waiting it out, which was uh, a lot of terror. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, do you, now, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? I watched this movie with my parents on uh, VHS. Remember that? Remember VHS? Oh, VHS. No. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so th- it, was, it was soon after it was released, and um, we, had a, we had a movie, we had a family movie night in the den in our house, and 
that shot of the Saturn V rocket taking off is seared into my imagination. It's an indelible part of my childhood with the, the dry ice breaking off and all the arms of the scaffolding breaking away in succession. Oh my gosh, I, I was totally blown away. Because of course, I was also a 10-year-old boy and so yeah. primed for the romance of spaceflight. But there was something else about the movie that continued to hook me. And I've, I've come back to it year after year. And every time I watch it, I appreciate more and more the, uh, the, the, the spiritual theme that runs through this movie. Uh, because you consider that in, in, if you were going to take this in terms of a utilitarian calculus. Okay, so you've got three men in a tin can in space. And we're really not sure if we can get them home. Well, you know, let's run the numbers. Okay, well, let, let's just count this as a loss. You know, we've got so many billion of people here on Earth and got these three people in space. Okay, let's write them off. But that's not what happens. At the very moment that something goes wrong, these men's lives become incalculably valuable. That there is no barrier that the NASA team will not break in order to get them home. And the, the shot that has really driven this home for me is, in fact, uh, this sequence where we're waiting for blackout and we're waiting to see if reentry happens or not. Because to me, Apollo 13, as a, as a film, as the way it's presented this story of the historical event, it, it suggests to me uh, our, a Catholic understanding of the human condition. Because you know, in, our, in, in our Catholic imagination, uh, we see humanity as something that has been wounded, something that doesn't have what it needs to get home, and that launch out into space and that in a wounded vessel you know, suggests to me a humanity that doesn't have the resources it needs to get home. And there's so much that can go wrong. And there's this whole planet, this whole host of people who are deeply invested in the fate of just three people, just three men who are in a tin can in space. And the whole world catches its breath and waits to see what is going to happen. And for me, that suggests the, the way that our lives here on Earth are viewed by God. There is so, such a host of love, such an infinite care and compassion that God has for each and every one of us. And even though we all may feel like we're all, all in our own individual you know, crippled spacecraft, God will stop at nothing to bring us home. And there is indeed this whole host. You know, in the Catholic imagination, we, we see the angels and saints as longing to bring us home, to bring us into union with God. That even if we have to pass through fire to do that, that is something that God will enable to happen. And the beautiful tension that's built up in this scene is released in this almost uh, euphoric way where against all odds in in the face of everything that could have gone wrong these men are saved and, and so it is with each and every person you know as Jesus says in the gospels there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance uh, that there is more joy over the person who makes it against all odds, who seems like everything is against them, and yet they are able to come home. They're able to enter back into life. There's 
such a it's spiritual depth that I there, there's such a spiritual depth that I love to this story because it speaks to that uh, indomitable human spirit, that indomitable longing uh, for things to go right that's in each of us, that I think is, is a sign of our desire for God. We want things to go right. We want the story to have a happy ending, despite all the evidence to the contrary, despite maybe the heat shield being cracked, despite maybe the parachutes just being blocks of ice, despite the blackout where we have no idea what's going to happen next. We still want there to be that happy ending. And that's something that doesn't come out of our experience of the normal world where we encounter so much disappointment. It's something that can only be there because, as I believe, we've been created for something infinitely more than just a tin can in space. We've been created for home. Now, see, I thought you were going to bring in Star Trek Three, but... <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, it it it, it is uh, like the, there was such intense focus. I mean, all of 1970, just there was this was, you know, just such a it had been a terrible couple of years with Vietnam and everything going on, and this this idea of the plight of of three, you know, brilliant guys out there in the middle of nowhere, and, and everybody just kind of leaned into their, you know, leaned in toward their screens, yeah. waiting to find out what was what was happening, and it was like you know the needs of these few people were were taken on by so many people. I mean, we've mm-hmm. talked about in the past 127 episodes uh, about, you know, people staying up late at Grumman and, and, uh, and working extra shifts at, in Houston and trying to make, make every last rivet on, on those spaceships do more than they'd ever done before. Um, but yeah, it, I, I think it is one of the most spiritual uh, uplifting movies of the nineties uh, that, that I can think of. It, it definitely, you come out of this movie feeling, uh, relieved, but you feel like you're a better person after seeing the thing. That gee, we're, you know, we actually we actually live in a world where people care about stuff like this. Yeah. On, thing- on that note, Jim, um, one of the things that I found in, in my research for the minutes, you know, we have a scene earlier in the movie where uh, Walter Cronkite talks about the Pope leading prayers for the yeah. astronauts in in St. Peter's Square. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes the Catholic Church isn't always up on the times. But surprisingly, in this case, I actually found a copy of what Pope St. Paul VI said on the 15th of April, 1970. On the 15th? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so his uh, his Wednesday uh, address that the Pope has is always at Roman noon on Wednesday. So. Okay. Uh, now I don't know where that would be exactly in the mission. Yeah, it's it's well, it's it's the day and a half before, but it's still you know they were coming back, they were heading back to Earth and trying to get the uh, oxygen, uh, the, the CO two reduced in in the spacecraft. So they were you know, uh, the the disaster had already happened. They were trying to get home. So they, they okay. definitely it, it's it's valid for that time period. Definitely. All right, good. Yes. All right. So the timing all works out. So I won't I won't uh, read through the whole thing. Plus my Italian is atrocious, but. Uh, I think to your point, Jim, about how everyone leaned into their screens and was invested in these men, I find the end of of, uh, Pope St. Paul VI, the words here, really beautiful. So in in a rough English translation, he says, Let us therefore raise a prayer to our Father in heaven for these bold men, now in danger, and for that, for us, more brothers than ever. Wow. Wow. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a great turn of phrase. And, uh... And you know, and for a minute, I mean, there was so much, there, there was so much strife going on. You know, like I said before, there's Vietnam. There were, different, you know, all all kinds of stuff going on in the world, uh, horrible relationships between nations, and that that everybody took, you know, 
hit the pause button on all that stuff because it was mm-hmm. even the you know the Russians were offering to do what they could. They couldn't do anything. But uh, oh, by the way, just <laughs> I'll, I'll explain this later. But my my uh, my wife has been praying to Saint Anthony today, and she her wallet just turned up, so she's very happy. She found hey, it. hey, that's awesome. <laughs> Tony <laughs> always comes through. Yes, um, <laughs> but she just she just waved a wallet at me. But but, <laughs> but yeah, but even though even though the, the Soviets couldn't do anything to help, they offered, and this was you know at the height of the Cold War. And, yeah. And it was just everybody said enough, enough. Let's let's worry about what's important and getting these three men back. And uh, it's it just it's just one of those days that you felt good to be on planet Earth. You know um, that, that it reminds me of. Um, so first off, I, I wanted to mention I found a picture and I'll have to share it on a Facebook group uh, of uh, Grand Central Station uh, that's totally packed and everybody's totally still. And they're watching Apollo 13's reentry, and it just shut down Grand Central Station. Like just, wow. you know, and, and uh, you know, for that place to to shut down is something else. But what I was going to say though is, it reminds me of when, you know, we we get caught up, especially right now. There's a lot going on, and we get caught up in our own, um, I guess, uh, causes. But when there's something that's so big that hits, it the it's horrible, but there's also a part of it that's, at least how I always felt, was a little bit refreshing that that there's, you know, people really are pulling together. When you watch, look at 9-11, uh, that's a horrible event, yeah. you know, a horrible, uh-huh. you know, historic event. But remember the days, the couple days after 9-11 where, you know, you checked on your neighbors, you know, you, you were, mm-hmm. I was out on the East Coast, so that was, you know, that, that, that hit home, you know, I mean, and, uh, there was just this feeling, uh, not just in this country, but everywhere of this is a time that we need to stick together. And though those, those, those events are awful, there's, there's a camaraderie that comes out of it, I guess, that I wish there was a way we could bottle it and use it more often, you know? Well, if we figured out how to do that, I think I would be out of a job. Which would be fine. <laughs> you could go back to your original your original goal of being an astronaut. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I think that ship may have sailed at uh. this point. <laughs> Don't know how good a, how good a philosophy degree is is going to do me when I show up at NASA. Well, you could try. You know, they, yeah. they haven't they haven't said no yet. That's the way you, you got to look at it. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it. it's like when we try to get you know big celebrity guests on. They haven't said no yet, so we're, we're still okay. So um, I'm, exactly. I'm, I'm talking to you, Ron Howard, if you're listening. Uh, but it, <laughs> come on, Ron, just pull the trigger. We know you listen. We'll, we just we'll need you on, for like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a piece of cake. You'll be you'll be the next Father David. Don't worry. We'll, we'll be just as popular. We'll actually have relevant things to say about the movie instead of talking about The Exorcist. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. You, uh, and when are you? By the way, when are you coming out with a movies by minute? I know you've been working on one. You're thinking about one, and I know it's not The Exorcist, but you have you must have something in store. I've give I've I've thought about it you know, with everything that happened gestures broadly um in the last couple months uh it's not really top of the pile right now um maybe in the future i'm 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 hesitant to commit myself it, it's just you know i i know how hard you work jim and <laughs> you know, that i know you're capable of doing three of these at once i don't know if i have the stamina to do just the one 
So uh, I, I guess I, I blame you for setting a poor example. Like, oh, my <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, look, look at how hard Jim works for well, all these. Oh, no, I I'm, don't know if I could do that. I serve as a warning for others. That's how. <laughs> don't, don't get in this deep. Just, you know, step back. But we, maybe we can have, I know I have a group project. Maybe if you can't do a whole thing, maybe we can get you to do uh, a week's worth. So we'll see if we can well, dip your toe in. Well, all right. That sounds like my speed. Okay. <laughs> okay. We'll get you on the Reader's Digest version of it. That'll be Perfect. great. Wow. Well, again, thanks so much for being on the show here on our, our final week. Oh, my gosh. Chris, it's getting it's getting close. It's we are the world's getting awful big in the window, Jim. Yeah, it sure is. It sure well, is. It's getting, getting a little hot in here, honestly. Yeah, and there's just a lot of condensation and water. Yeah, and yeah. Sort of brought my rain slicker. Yeah. Oh gosh, yeah. We've already had our last. Back two minutes ago, we had our last gentleman. There were ten. You know, the drinking, the Apollo thirteen drinking game was mm-hmm. uh, ten. There's ten gentlemen. Every time somebody says gentleman, and we're already past the gentleman part. That's how. That's how far into this movie we're at. But we got some more. We got some more great ones. Not as great as you, Father Dave. But we'll have we'll have oh, a couple shucks. of couple of folks coming in at the end. So uh, so keep checking us out. If you would like to uh, talk about this minute or any of our previous minutes, love hearing from you on social media. Check us out on Facebook at Apollo Thirteen Minutes Mission Control, or on Twitter, of course. Uh, easy to remember, Apollo Thirteen Minute. Uh, and if you've missed any of the previous episodes, they're available on all your favorite podcatchers like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or all those other, if they haven't been bought out by each other already. But you can find them at their big site, Apollo13Minute.com, Apollo13Minute.com. All the previous episodes are there, so you can catch up right away. Uh, anyway, we will be back tomorrow as we get closer and closer and find out uh, if this radio blackout's ever going to end. Um, but uh, we, it looks like we're coming up on uh, loss of signal in about 30 seconds, so we will see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.